go before our Lord in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It seems somewhat of an appropriate question to ask on the debut of Avengers when the theater that we're worshiping in is showing in over half of its theaters the movie. What if you were a superhero? Have you ever thought about that? What if you were a superhero? What superpower would you have? Now I can see some of you are like on the edge of your seat because you've already thought about this and you're like, I know, I know. I would have marine telepathy. I would, like Aquaman, be able to talk to animals in the, in the sea with my mind. I'd be able to communicate with them. Okay, that's one. Um, some others. Maybe uh, you want to be like Storm from X-Men and be able to control weather patterns as they happen. Maybe, like the Flash, you want to be incredibly fast. Maybe it's like my friend who I asked this last week. She said she wanted to have the superpower of invisibility so she'd never have to pay for another concert or go to another Packer game again. She could just go right into the front row. Or maybe some of the more traditional superpowers. You want to have incredible strength like the Hulk. Or maybe, maybe for a lot of us, it was the go-to. You wanted to be able to fly like Superman. Have you ever thought about that? Being a superhero, what superpower would you want to have? Or how about this? Have you ever thought about this? What if you were a super Christian? A lot of you are like, well, it's not as cool as being, you know, maybe a superhero. But no, listen, what if you were a super Christian? And I'm not saying you are a perfect Christian or you are some kind of demigod because like most superheroes, they have their Achilles heel and we're not perfect. But what if you were a super Christian and you had one Christian characteristic or one Christian virtue that you could always go to? You could always go to, uh, well, to fight evil. What would it be? Would it be kindness? So that anyone and everyone who has ever been wronged or treated with cruelty would know God's love through you. Or maybe it'd be generosity. And so with your time and your gifts, you help build God's kingdom here on earth. Or maybe it's encouragement. So whenever anyone was down, depressed, you would know exactly what to say to them, to encourage them, to lift them up, to make them feel strong in the strength of the Lord. Or maybe it's hospitality. Maybe you would have this gift that whenever you met people, you always made them feel welcome. No one was around you who ever felt like they were alone because you made them feel at home. Or how about this one? How about humility? Have you thought about that? What if that was your superpower so that with humility you could um, be modest, um, be polite, be unassuming? I don't know. Think about that one, though. Humility. What would you do with humility? Is it a superpower that a lot of us maybe think we would want as super-Christians? I don't know if it is. Take a look. Here's the definition 
of humility that you would find in most dictionaries. That humility is having or showing a low estimate of one's own importance. Being of low rank. Doesn't necessarily sound like a superpower, does it? And you couple that with the fact that we live in a time where people have an unprecedented avenue to to go and show themselves. And that's encouraged, right? Um, People are told, if you have something to say, say it, be loud, be heard. People are thought of highly if they know things, and, well, they are known because of that. It seems that outgoingness is idolized, and you pair all of this with the fact that, well, our own sinful pride doesn't necessarily want to take a backseat to anything or anyone. Why would we want humility to be our Christian superpower if there were such a thing? About how having humility... In James chapter 4, we are going to talk about how having humility, having an attitude of humility, having the Lord with you in your attitudes is, is an out-of-this-world superhuman power. A power that can fight against negative attitudes, sinful attitudes, and a power that can perhaps end the war on self. We're going to look at that in James chapter 4 this morning. We're going to look at how that superpower plays out in our daily lives. But as we do, we're also going to look at Numbers chapter 11. Because do you know what happened after Numbers chapter 11? I think I heard it. Numbers chapter 12. That's exactly it. Bingo. And do you know why Numbers chapter 12 is relevant to our conversation on humility? Well, we read Numbers chapter 12 just a few weeks ago here in church, and it's where the author of Numbers, Moses, who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, wrote this about himself. He said, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at how actually Moses could very appropriately say that with the Lord, knowing that the Lord was with him. But as you listen to Numbers 11, you're going to wonder how, how that can be. Because, well, Moses shows the opposite of humility. But he's also going to show how the Lord with you in a miraculous way makes all the difference. My friends, we are in James chapter 4 and Numbers 11. But let's start with the first 10 verses of James chapter 4, if you will. James write this. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is James so far. It's perhaps the most scathing section in James. He calls the people he's writing a letter to adulteresses. He calls them sinners. He tells them to turn laughter to mourning. And why? Well, because he says the, the main reason, the main reason you have fights within yourself, you have this self-war going on, the main reason you have fights and quarrels with others, he says because you're double-minded. You're living this duplicitous life where you say you're friends with God, but you live like you're friends with the world. Now, what does that mean, friends with the world? Well, first let me say what it doesn't mean. Being friends with the world doesn't mean that you can't have friends who are non-Christians. You can. Scripture encourages this. Being friends with the world doesn't mean that we should stay either in our homes or in church, and other than that, never go out, never enjoy things like movies, never enjoy things like dancing and music and alcohol. We can enjoy these things. These are gifts from God, right? But what being friends with the world does mean is this. Is that you love what the world promises or says it promises. You love what the world gives. You love what the world offers more than what God gives. More than what God promises. More than what God offers. You love the idea that you can get happiness by getting more things, more money, more than the idea that, that in God, he is joy. He gives you joy. You like the idea that you need to make a name for yourself more than God's promise that he has put his name on you. That's what being friends with the world versus being friends with God means. And in Numbers chapter 11, well, we see that. Where our lesson from Numbers chapter 11 is about to pick up is, is where Israel has been in the desert for over two years. They have been released from the bondage of slavery in Egypt for two years. And that means they have seen God take them out of Egypt by performing wonders, by performing the, the plagues that he sent on Egypt. They have seen God part the Red Sea and drown Pharaoh's army in the sea. They have seen God come before them as a, as a pillar of cloud and a pillar and a cloud of smoke and lead them through the desert. They have seen God descend on Mount Sinai. They have felt, they have seen his goodness as they have been provided food every day since they have left Egypt in the form of manna. They've seen God. They've seen the Lord with them. They've seen his power. They've been friends with God. They've been followers of God. And yet here in Numbers chapter 11, they're also friends with the world and what that offers. In Numbers chapter 11, we pick it up at verse 4 where we read this. Now, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, Oh, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. We also remember the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now, 
We've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Like friends with the world who forget that their best friend is God, they begin to complain. And even worse, just like James, just like James says, they complain in such a way where they don't even ask God. They don't even come before God and say, God, we're kind of hungry. We would like some variety. Would you consider giving this to us? No, they just complain with godless complaints. Oh, and as for their leader, as for Moses, who is the most humble man in all the earth, Let's pick it up at verse 11 of chapter 11 in Numbers and see how Moses responds. This is Moses talking to God. Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. This burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. That was five verses I just read to you. In 16 times, in five verses, Moses pulls out the me, myself, or I card. And all of a sudden, what does the most humble man in all the earth do? Well, he arrogantly, pridefully makes this problem all about himself. Forgetting that God, who is provided in every situation, would provide again. And what does James call these people? Well, he doesn't hold back. He calls such people as this who, who claim to be friends with God, but who act like they're friends with the world, adulteresses. As people who are cheating on God with other idols. And no, not in this case, idols made out of gold or, or bales or other pagan gods, but idols. Idols that come up on our hearts the idols of our own thoughts, our own desires, our own opinions, our own ideas. And James says, battle within you. It's you. It's your pride that makes you an adulterer, adulterer, a cheater on God. This past week I was I was talking to some friends, uh, a married couple who has been married ten times longer than I have. And we were having a deep conversation, real deep. We were talking about uh, the effects of litter on the environment, global warming, the plastic that's piling up in the ocean, all these things. And I told them that, you know, I've been married three and a half years now. And sometimes my wife catches me throwing recyclables in the garbage and, and garbage in the recyclables. And, and this is not good. It, it happens more often than I'm proud to admit but I was encouraged because this couple that had been married almost 10 times longer than I have had said, hey, we're still working on that too. And if you're concerned about it now, don't worry, you're in a good place. And we had a good laugh about this, right? Now, imagine this. Imagine I'm talking to the same couple and I say, hey guys, I've been married for three and a half years and it's kind of crazy, I know. 
But sometimes I just forget that I'm married. And I sleep with other women. And sometimes I go and I, I get drinks with other girls because I forget that I'm married. And, you know, every once in a while, my wife catches me. Now, no one would laugh. It wouldn't be funny, right? Because adulteries, it's not a joke. It's not something to laugh about. If, if, if you have ever been in the position to, to, to know a loved one who disowns you, who, who cheats on you, you know the emptiness. You know the, the pain of that level of deep rejection. That's how James talks about our sin. He doesn't talk about like, oops, Matt, you threw the Gatorade bottle in the garbage can again. No, he talks about it like when you sin, when you sin against our God, it's like cheating on your spouse. It's like getting caught having sex with someone you're not married to. We're wrapping up our series on James, a series where we have looked at how the Lord with us in our thoughts, our words, and our actions, and today our attitudes makes a huge difference in our lives. And I have no way to actually quantify this or know if it's actually happening, but Throughout this series, it has felt like more comments, more people have commented to me on, on what this series has meant for their life, for their life of faith. A lot of people have said, Pastor, that message from James, what God's word has to say about how the Lord with me in the way I think about poor people, that has really stuck with me. That's made a difference in my life this week. A lot of people have said to me, man, hearing that sermon on the power of my words, how they, how they can cut people, but how at the very same time I can, I can heal, I can lift people up, I can encourage by speaking to them godly things, God-pleasing things, and just give glory to God with, with the decency of my talk. That has made an impression on me. People have talked about how, man, I've never heard about how much my, my work as a Christian matters. No, it doesn't matter for my salvation, but the works that I do make a difference in my life, in my life as a Christian. And you know, let me get kind of Jamesy on you for a second and be blunt. Despite all of those comments, through three weeks of studying the books of James, has it really made that big of a difference? Is there actually any tangible, noticeable difference in the way that you're living? Or are we being duplicitous? Are we being double-minded? Do we come to church and, mm, yes, that sermon, that sermon on language, oh, needed to hear that. And yet, that's Sunday. By Tuesday, we're talking like sailors. Do we come to church and go, wow, I've never really thought about how, how God's word has so much to say about how I look at other people, especially people who are, who are less well off than me, people who are poor, people who are in need. Man, I really have been blessed by God and, and should do something. And then Thursday comes and it's easier to sleep with the idea that, you know, I am the way I am because of something I've done or you know what? Those people deserve that because of choices they made. We come to church and we hear sermons about how our actions make a difference, how, how God says that a, a workless faith is a worthless faith. And yet, 
ah, that's a lot of work. I'll just know that God loves me. James says, says you adulterous people, don't you know that the friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friends of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's James. That's James in the first part of James chapter 4. And like I said, it is perhaps the most scathing section in all of James. All of James has been building up to this where he calls people to repentance. He says, stop living like that. But after that most scathing part, if that hurt, listen, you need to hear what comes after because it is the sweetest part in all of James. He says this. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Make sure you're in James. Look at verse 5. Get ready to highlight, underline this, or circle it. James says this. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friends of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or, or do you think, Scripture says without reason that he that God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. What God's word is saying is that he is that spouse who is jealous for your love, who wants nothing but your love. He is that spouse who, while you are out and gone and with false gods, he's waiting for you. He is at home waiting for you with open arms and what's more, more grace, more love, more forgiveness. When Moses and God's people open up and just complain about all that they don't have because of him and, and act with a double mind, what does God do? Open up the earth and swallow him whole for, for cheating on him spiritually? No. Look at what God does. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. This is the Lord speaking to Moses who arrogantly whines to him. He says, all right, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of the meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. Oh, if only we had meat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat. He gives more grace. Here is a God who jealously longs for you. Who jealously longs for the spirit that he has put inside of you. He wants to give you his goodness. He wants to give you his grace. He wants to pour out more of his spirit on you. He wants to more speak to you through his word. And that's what he does for them. He says, tell all the people and catch this. He says, consecrate yourselves in preparation for what's to come. What, is that, what does that churchy word mean? Consecrate? Well, it means to set apart for holy living. Stop living the way you were and be different. Sanctify. Make yourself holy for what's about to happen. 
What he's saying is no different from what we have heard in church over the past four weeks as we've confessed our sins. It comes from the book of James where he says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What Numbers is talking about and what James is talking about is the concept, the idea of repentance. Martin Luther says that the entire Christian's life should be one of repentance. But what does that mean? What, what idea do you have when you, when you think about repentance? Well, as we look to wrap our heads around the idea that humility can be a superpower in the lives of Christians, it's important that we stop and understand what this idea of repentance is. Because repentance, in short, is this. Repentance is us, humbly lowering ourselves before God as the Lord lifts us up. It is at once one of the hardest, most difficult things for people to do. Humbly go before the Lord. But it is at the same time one of the most uplifting, wonderful things that the Christian could ever have from God. This gift of repentance. For in repentance, yeah, we come before God and we do some things we do not like doing. Washing off the cologne, wiping away the lipstick of our love affair with other idols, and instead submitting to God. Doing what no one wants to do and putting themselves underneath God. Because when that happens, when you submit yourself to God, then he tells us this. He says, "He says, then the devil will flee from you. Then you have the power to resist all those temptations. He says, yeah, come near to me. And sometimes we feel ashamed. Sometimes we feel afraid and we want to do anything but come near to God. But he says, come near to me and I will come near to you. He says, yeah. You need to wash yourselves. You need to purify yourselves. But when you do that, I will lift you up. And the reason why repentance works that way, the reason why James could say that seemingly backwards thing, that when you humble yourself, you will be lifted up, is because of what Jesus said and what he did in John chapter 3. He says, The Son of Man has come down from heaven, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. And everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. It's because the Son of Man was lowered from heaven that we get lifted up to heaven. It's because the Son of Man went so far as to be lowered into a grave that you and I get lifted up, get raised out of the grave. It's because the Son of Man allowed himself willingly to be lifted up on a cross that you and I too will be of our God because we will in a way that knows the grace and the face of our God because we will be with him. That is why James can say, humble yourselves before the Lord. Come near to him and he will lift you up. It's because this is what repentance is about. It is about at once one of the hardest things ever, acknowledging that we are sinful, that we have cheated on our God. And trusting at the very same time that that God jealously longs for you and wants you and will lift you up. That's why repentance works. And now you are beginning to see why humility can be a superpower in the life of a Christian. 
I want to talk about three very, very practical ways that it can be very powerful. But before we do, let's be clear on what humility is. Most definitions that you're going to find in dictionaries say that this is humility. But can I say something about this definition? It stinks. It's awful. In fact, it reeks of pride. It reeks of arrogance. It reeks of actually the opposite of humility. Read it again. Having or showing a low estimate of one's own importance. Being of low rank. All it does is talk about self. Yes, in a self-depreciating way, but isn't self-interest the opposite of humility? Here's a better definition. A definition I find fantastic that comes from the Christian author C.S. Lewis. He said this. He said, humility is this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not about thinking, oh, I am low in rank. I am stupid. I am, I am this or I am that. No, it is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility has nothing to do with you. Humility is not about you, not even one bit. Not even of thinking of yourself as being less. No, humility is thinking about yourself less. Why? Because more and more you are consumed with the overwhelming thought that you have a God who loves you. You have the Lord with you. You have a God with you who gives you his love, who gives you his peace. He gives you his grace more than this world could ever provide. A God who gives you rest, a God who gives you wisdom, a God who gives you purpose. And these are just the spiritual blessings. A God who gives you friends and family, house and home, shelter and food, and all of these things. This is the God that you have. And when these things, these thoughts overwhelm you, they overpour into your life and you realize, oh, humility Humility before God, thinking of myself less and Christ more, that has power. And here's three ways. We've looked at a few of them already. The first one, the first way that humility has power in your life is that humility gives you the power to see your needs met more completely. As we look at numbers and we see God's people complain about what they do not have, what does God do? Well, first and foremost, he helps with their greatest need. He helps them out spiritually. He gives them his spirit on more of God's people so more of God's people can come to gives us, gives them. Stop there. We have a God who also gives us, gives them their daily bread and meat. He gives them what they wanted. He takes care of, yes, even their physical needs. It's when you and I stand before the cross of Christ. And thinking of ourselves less and Christ more, we see that in God, we have all of our needs completely met. Yes, we have been giving a love so high, so wide, so long, so deep that we can't even begin to understand it. But we've also been giving far more than we've deserved. We've been given more grace, grace on top of grace. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. This is James chapter 1, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Now, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. 
We have a God who does not change. He was the same God who provided for the Israelites. He was the same God that provided for his people throughout all of time. And before the cross, when we humbly see that we don't deserve anything, we see that in Christ we have, yes, all that we could ever, ever truly need. Yes, maybe not all that we want, but we have in him all that we need. Here's the second thing. Humility gives you the power to see all people more compassionately. Talking in his fourth chapter, James goes from talking about humility to talking about repentance, and then he goes into talking about judgment, judgment of other people. If you're following along, James chapter 4, verse 11 says this. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Christian humility that thinks about self less and Christ more by standing at the foot of the cross sees this. It sees people through the lens of the cross. That all of us are sinful before God. That all of us don't deserve anything but his wrath and his judgment. And yet judgment is spared and mercy is poured out on all of God's people. And so grace, if it's really grace, if it's really God's undeserved love, then there before the cross, all people are equally sinful than Joshua, who are equally saved. In Numbers chapter 11, Joshua, who would, who would later take over leading God's people for Moses, judged. He became jealous. Listen, so Moses, verse 24, went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of the elders and he had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and he put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since you, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Humility that doesn't look down on people with judgment or doesn't look up on people with jealousy, but humility that realizes that in and of ourselves we're nothing, but we are more in Christ doesn't judge, but instead looks on all people with compassion. And like now, humbled Moses says, I wish that all of God's people would get to know his spirit, would get to experience his love. The power of humility, it does two things. It helps you to see that your needs are met more completely, and it helps you see that people are more, see all people more compassionately. And this humility gives you the power this sounds like a superpower to see the future more completely, more clearly. 
Here's Moses finishing out Numbers 11. In verse 21, he says this, still complaining. This is going back a little bit. He says, here am I among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? You know, Moses is the leader of God's people. And he's thinking through what God said, that he's going to provide meat for all of them. And he doesn't see how this plan is going to really work out. God, we do not have enough flocks and sheep to kill, to feed all of them. How, how are you going to do this? And yet he forgets. And the Lord answers Moses. And he says, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Now wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that night and day and the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten omers. Then they spread out all around the camp what they had collected. You think about it. Was it wrong for Moses to plan? Well, no. But it was wrong that he planned forgetting that the Lord's arm is strong. And that's what James reminds us when he closes out chapter 4 saying this. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. What is James telling us? To put away the calendars? To throw away the budgets? The retirement plans? To cancel the church planning meeting next week? To chant to cancel the long-range planning meetings that we have? No. What James is saying is that there's a better way to plan. There's a better way to look into the future. It's not like Moses who, who planned with arrogant pride and worry. And it's not like the people James is talking to who planned with, well, arrogant certainty. It's the plan knowing that what will happen is according to God's will. It's to pray the prayer that we pray every time we say the Lord's Prayer and say, Thy will be done. It's to sign your letters DV, Deo Volente, which, which means as the Lord wills it. It's to make plans, humbly knowing that the God who moved all of time and history to see your salvation was sure can move all time and history again to make sure that all good works out for those who love God. A humble heart allows you to look into the future and see that more clearly. And that's hard. Humility is hard. It's hard to trust that God's going to look everything if we just stop worrying about it and think less of ourselves. It's hard to look at people and, and know that I'm the same. Because of Christ, I'm equally as sinful, but equally as saved. And it's hard. It's hard to stop worrying about tomorrow and simply plan knowing that God is going to take care of me. Yeah, humility is hard. 
that's why I want to close by just telling you Molly's story. Molly was a college senior, and she had been going to college for four years. And over the course of those four years, there was a group of girls in Molly's class that had really bullied her, had really been cruel to her, had pranked her, embarrassed her. And there she was in her senior year sitting in class and this clique of girls was behind her. And they said, hey, Molly, we have something for you. And all you got to do is just close your eyes first. And Molly turned around and with a look that said, you got to be kidding me, said, no, no, thank you. And she turned back around because can you blame her? Why would you entrust yourself to someone well, who's going to harm you? But then class got done. Molly walked out to her car and got ready to go home. And and there she saw her boyfriend that she had been dating for four years standing next to her car. And he was fumbling around with something in his pocket. And he he had a rose in his hand. And he looked at Molly and he said, Molly, would you just close your eyes for a second? I have something I want to give you. And she did. You see, it's all about who's with you that makes humility possible. Christian friends, the Lord is with you. And the Lord who is jealous for you, for your love, for your attention, wants to put his spirit in you and give you the power to be humble, to live for him. That's the Lord that's with you in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, and your attitudes. Amen.